Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Happy Easter to you. It is amazing to see you in this place today. And this morning I want to begin by telling you a story about a woman named Irina Filikina. Irina Filikina had big plans. She was turning 53 in April. And she wanted to start focusing on herself after spending the last three decades of her life raising her two daughters in the suburbs of Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. Filkina signed up for a cosmetics course at the beginning of 2020, purchasing her first ever set of blush and eyeliner and concealer, which she planned on wearing at an upcoming concert. She got a cherry red manicure for Valentine's Day with a heart on the nail of her ring finger because she wanted to love herself more and this would symbolize that to her. However, her plan stalled at the end of February when Russia invaded Ukraine. Both of her daughters quickly crossed the border into Poland, but Filkina stayed to help her people. She spent a week in Buka's epicenter feeding the hungry who were sheltering there and cooking for the Ukrainian military. She was selfless in her compassion and generosity, giving her time and energy and gifts away for the sake of others. On March 5th, Filkina was doing what she always had been doing, helping people, and the day came to an end and she tried to get a seat in one of the cars that was evacuating people out of town, but there was no room. So she decided to ride her bicycle home. One of her daughters begged her to take the train instead because it was not safe. Russia occupied the village at the time, and they were killing people every day. But Filkina replied, oh, you don't know your mother. I can move mountains. It was the last conversation they ever had. Filkina never made it home. She was one of many civilians who was gunned down by Russian soldiers that day. Images from the scene showed a woman in a blue jacket curled hand peeking out of the sleeve with cherry red nail polish and a heart on the ring finger shining through the grime and dirt of death. The photo helped her daughters identify her and they, they were devastated. When I knew my mother was killed, her daughter said, I felt like my spine was broken. I laid down crying helplessly. And yet, despite the gravity of their loss, Filkina's daughters turned toward hope to honor their mother and her memory. They told reporters who finally put the pieces together and called them, they told these reporters, please realize that behind this picture of her hand and her manicure stands a great woman. We want this picture to become a symbol of a new beginning, a symbol that tells the occupiers they can do anything to us but they cannot take the main thing we have. They cannot take our love. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the message of Easter. The 19th century English poet John Clare wrote, in crime and enmity they lie who sin and tell us love can die. Who say to us in slander's breath that love belongs to sin and death. From heaven it came on angel's wing to bloom on earth eternal spring. In falsehood's enmity they lie who sin and tell us love can die. Arena Filkina's daughters and John Clare are right. There is a love that cannot die. A love that cannot be killed. A love that cannot be 
executed, a love that cannot be murdered, a love that cannot be crucified, a love that cannot be buried, a love that cannot be entombed, a love that cannot be contained. And that is what possessed Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to set out after the Sabbath as the first day of the week was dawning to go to the tomb where Jesus was buried. They brought no spices to anoint the body in Matthew's gospel as in other versions. They asked no questions about who would roll away the stone. They voiced no intentions at all. They simply got up at the break of dawn and journeyed toward the tomb. It was love that carried them, the kind of love that cannot be killed, the same love, in fact, that helped them stay with him at the cross when others abandoned him, to stay near him as he died when everyone else was gone, to stay and to see the exact place where he was buried when no one else was around. It was love, a love that could not be killed that held them next to Jesus during his bleakest hour. And it was a love that could not be killed that drew them out toward the tomb that fateful morning. And it may not seem like a big deal for the women to go back to Jesus' grave, but it was a brave and selfless act of defiance. Jesus, remember, was a criminal charged with perverting the nation, stirring up the people, forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar. He was executed as an enemy of the state, hung between two bandits, traded for a violent insurrectionist named Barabbas. Governor Pilate had placed Roman guards outside his grave to prevent his followers from coming to take him. So visiting Jesus' tomb was like laying flowers on the grave of a revolutionary leader. It was treason just to go. Great courage and brazenness was required on the part of these women to pay their respects to a man who had turned the world upside down, especially after they'd witnessed his brutal torture and execution firsthand. They had had to be concerned about the temple authorities and the violent Roman soldiers awaiting them at the tomb. And yet they went back to the tomb anyway. Their grief was strong, but their love was stronger. Woman of scholar Renita Weems notices that the women of Galilee always travel together in a pack. Whenever the gospels refer to these women, in every gospel actually, there is always more than one. They never go alone. They go in a pack to force the writers and other disciples to take note. One woman can be explained away. One woman can be dismissed as unusual or different. One woman can be overlooked, but several women cannot be ignored. There is strength in numbers. Perhaps this is why they traveled together, forcing history to remember them as a group, as sisters. There's power and visibility when women band together. They were a community of women in an outfit of men, not apologetic for their numbers, but empowered by a shared vision and by love. Weems remind us it was already a small community that traveled to Jesus' tomb that morning. Two women two witnesses. And as Baptists, we know that wherever two or three of us are gathered, there will be Jesus and barbecue <laughs> and sweet tea and possibly even some Holy Spirits. Seriously, the first church in the gospel was Mary and Mary walking together on their way to the grave with nothing but a love that could not be killed. These two women and their love were literally 
earth-shaking. That's right, their arrival caused an earthquake. Did you hear that in the text? It's like that famous REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. I could just hear Mary Magdalene going, that's great, it starts with an earthquake. Birds, snakes, and airplanes. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Okay, they didn't know who Lenny Bruce was, but you can imagine in their minds thinking, an earthquake? But the earthquake then combined with an angel of lightning, rolling back the stone and sitting on it like a boss, terrifying the Roman guards who had been stationed outside Jesus' tomb. Matthew tells us that these lifelong, experienced soldiers who had seen revolts and wars began shaking in their boots and were literally scared to death. My, how the tables have turned here. Not to mention, the angel did not try to console the soldiers at all. He did not even speak to them. He told the women, do not be afraid, but he said no such thing to the guards, implying, yes, oh yes, they should be afraid. They should be very afraid. The power of God is now at loose in the world, and it is a power that opposes imperial forces and dwarfs the Roman army and makes soldiers look like toy Legos. In addition, the angel had no message for the guards who were frozen stiff like dead by fear. But he did have a message for the women, and it was completely unimaginable, far beyond anything that they could ever fathom. I know who you're looking for, the angel said. He is not here. He has been raised. Go tell his disciples. He has been raised and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. The earthquake, the angel of lightning in Matthew's resurrection story signified to us that a seismic shift of cosmic and universal proportions has taken place. 2,000 years later now, we have difficulty comprehending the fact that Friday looked like the empire had won. Friday looked like the corrupt and re religious leaders and the political establishment had conquered, that death had triumphed. Well, Friday, it looked that State-sponsored terrorism and torture and execution was the most powerful force on earth. But then Sunday came. Jesus wasn't the only thing that was killed on Good Friday. We sometimes forget that so much, so many other things were killed as well. His family was killed. The community that Jesus had called and gathered and loved and cultivated for years was scattered and destroyed. The movement was crucified. His vision of the kingdom was executed. The hopes and dreams of all his followers were buried in the ground. But the empire could not kill the love that these women possessed when they rose up in the morning. And the empire could not stop the earthquake that they brought and the angel of lightning that arrived from shaking the agents of violence to the core. The resurrection means that the empire's power over death has been subverted. The empire, it turns out, is not the most powerful force on earth. After all, God is. And Jesus was not the only thing resurrected on Easter. His movement, his message, his mission were also resurrected. The vision of the kingdom, his relationships, his community was resurrected from the dead as well. Matthew tells us that after hearing the angel, the women quickly left the tomb with fear and joy, trying to do what the angel had told them, run to tell the disciples and going to see Jesus where they had not seen him yet all the way in Galilee. They thought they were going to get all the way to Galilee before they saw Jesus when suddenly the risen Jesus who had not appeared yet jumped out in front of them on the road and said, surprise. <laughs> I mean, come on, Jesus. The way this story goes, it's already been a day for these women. 
What are you trying to do to these poor women? It's not even nine o'clock. They've already had an earthquake, an angel of lightning, the stone rolled away, an empty tomb, and now you're jumping out of the bushes saying greetings, shalom, as if everything's fine. Another translation of this word here is rejoice. Who is the angel kidding when he said, don't be afraid? How could you not be afraid? If I'd been one of the women running down that road when Jesus popped out of nowhere, I would have soiled my loincloths. But after they touched Jesus' feet, he gave the woman the same instructions that the angel had with one slight difference. Do not be afraid, he said. Go and tell my brothers and sisters to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Did you catch the difference? The angel said disciples, but Jesus called them brothers and sisters. This is massive. It reveals that regathering and reconstituting and resurrecting the community of his followers is the number one critical priority mission of the risen Jesus. And not only that, but he knew that a powerful act of forgiveness would be required to get the band back together. You have to remember, they had betrayed him, except for the women. They had abandoned him, except for the women. They had died, denied him, and run away at his crucial moment. Not only would Jesus have to offer an olive branch of brotherly love, but the disciples would also, in this moment, have to learn how to forgive themselves in order to receive the resurrection. You cannot resurrect a community without forgiveness. Jesus called them brothers to demonstrate that he had forgiven them and that just like the women who were steadfast, they will always be his family. I remember damage, then escape, then adrift in a stranger's galaxy for a long time, but I'm safe now. I found it again, my home. These are the words that begin Station Eleven, a graphic novel featured in the critically acclaimed best-selling book by Emily St. John Mandel and the HBO series. Station Eleven is a story of people who survive a deadly pandemic that spreads instantly fast, wipes out most of the human population, and causes the collapse of civilization. Now, I know what you're thinking. The book was written back in 2014. The story picks up 20 years after the pandemic and follows a ragtag group of nomadic actors, musicians, and stagehands that call themselves the Traveling Symphony who tour around the Great Lakes region performing Shakespeare plays and classical music for small communities that live there. Sarah, the conductor of the troupe, says, we're the traveling symphony. We travel for a reason. We burn the house down, then we go. We do it just to try to make the world make sense for a minute. And unlike other dystopian stories that depict people trying to survive the apocalypse, Station Eleven proclaims that survival is insufficient and casts a vision of what life might be like after the calamity, when the world is reborn and remade out of the ashes of devastation. It asks the question, what does it look like to go on after everything has been lost? How do we find hope in the wake of devastation? What are the things that remain and continue when civilization seems to be gone? Where do we start when we have to start over? The people in Station 11 find their hope in each other, in community, in the traveling symphony, in that ragtag family of nomads and performers. They find their hope in working together to create something beautiful, 
Art, plays, stories, music. They find their hope in offering their gifts to the world around them. They had no buildings, television, cell phones, internet, infrastructure, government, none of that. What remains when everything is lost are the things that matter most in life. Friendship, fellowship, community, art, music, stories, culture. These are the things that we get to return to, the things that ground us, the things that sustain us. The eternal and indomitable power of community is the building block of a new world, the hope for a better future. It's where we start when we want to begin again. I know it's rather audacious this day and age to even speak of hope. In a world at war in Yemen and Ethiopia, Afghanistan and Ukraine, ravaged by a global pandemic on the brink of existential ruin from climate change, beriddled and bedeviled by racism, patriarchy, homophobia and xenophobia, and the rapid decline of organized religion in our country, how do we even speak of hope these days, let alone hold on to it or live it? South African theologian Alan Aubrey Bosick once asked, dare we even speak of hope? But as one who saw the most horrifying kind of imperialism and colonialism and oppression and racial apartheid, Bosak's answer was a resounding yes. We must speak of hope, he said. We must because the resurrection is God's insurrection and protest against all the brokenness and inhumanity and death and destruction in our world. It's God's uprising against the violence that caused Jesus to go to the cross. It's God's rebellion against our resignation and our need to compromise with evil and our tendency toward despair, our hopelessness, our willingness to sell the dream of God and God's people to the highest bidder. The tomb is the surest guarantee against the enclosure of our souls, against the imprisonment of our spirits, against the internment of our hopes. He says, together, Easter means that together we walk hand in hand with hope from the open tomb out into the waiting world. To be raised with Jesus is to join with God in the revolt against the forces of evil and death that seek to steal our lives and destroy our world. A year ago, as people began to take steps to come out of the pandemic, NPR's Morning Edition asked their audience to write a poem using Maya Angelou's Still I Rise as inspiration. They received hundreds of responses and asked their resident poet, Kwame Alexander, to take these lines from all the submissions that they received and create a community poem about the challenges of the past few years and hope for the future. And he wrote a poem entitled, I Wake With Wonder. Every morning I wake with wonder and dive into the day. I grasp for my phone like a lifeline, a buoy. I rise among displaced dreams of yore, supplanted plans, disrupted from the year, so distanced from all social life before. I set out on my way to make snacks for three kids because that's all I seem to do with them here all day. And it's hard work because it's heart work. This is artwork. I rise like the sap in a maple tree, knowing it's time to feed its budding branches, like seedlings struggling toward the light, even though I need a baptism of magic waters to cure all that aches my soul. I don my gowns and masks and gloves, tend to the sick, the lost, the tired, the dead. I say a prayer. I talk to God. 
I think of all the things that I love, birds and flowers, books and dandelions, earthworms, and all those things I never thought to love or not enough. I rise even when the news of the day makes me want to stay in bed, even when the outlook is bleak. Oh, yes, I mourn those that we have lost and the cost of human lives, but I still rise. I cry for those who are gone, who have marched on, still fire in my eyes, burned for justice denied, flame hot for truth. We rise even when our spirits feel deflated, because this too shall pass, because we are made of stardust. I am a new breath in an older memory of yesterday and tomorrow. So I'm easing out of this rabbit hole to find my equilibrium again, to find my nerve, to be who I am, to fill each day, not miss one, to see the world full on, to live and love, to write, to work, to laugh, to share, to fight, to create a world of generosity, a world where we are inspired to help each other in every moment. So rise up, my friends. Rise up, all one heart. This Easter morning, when we ask ourselves, where is our hope? We can say with great confidence that our hope is out ahead of us, waiting for us in Galilee, waiting there to see us. Our hope is always out in the future, but a future that invites us to go back to where it all began, to the first things, where the vision was first cast, where our calling was originally heard and where our hope was first founded. Hope is always out ahead of us, waiting for us, offering us the gift of forgiveness, a forgiveness that leads to reconciliation, reconstitution, and the resurrection of our families and our communities. The greatest and most invincible hope that we will ever have is each other. And the infinite possibilities of the work that we can do and the world we get to build together. All we have to do to discover this earth-shaking hope, the earth-shaking hope that the women found on Easter morning, the earth-shaking hope that Irina Filkina's daughters found in the wake of their mother's death, is to remember that there is a kind of love that cannot be killed, a kind of love that cannot be executed, a kind of love that cannot be murdered, a kind of love that cannot be crucified, a love that cannot be buried, a love that cannot be entombed, a love that cannot be contained, a love that is more powerful than all the forces of death and destruction in our world, a love that is even more powerful than any empire on the face of this earth, a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, a love that never ends, a love that will never, ever die. And that kind of love, my friends, that kind of love has the power to bring us all back to life if we want to. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. Amen.